everybody, and welcome back to our podcast here at the New Books Network. This is your host, Stephen Siegel, coming to you from San Diego today. And my guest for New Books Eastern European Studies today is Larry Wolf. Larry Wolf has written a new book. It's called Woodrow Wilson and the Reimagining of Eastern Europe published by Stanford University Press in 2020. Welcome, Larry, to our podcast today. Thanks very much, Stephen. Now, I want to begin with a couple of questions about this particular book. So, Larry, can you introduce perhaps why you decided to write a book on Woodrow Wilson? What are your motivations for this? So, you know, Stephen, I've been interested for a long time in ideas about Eastern Europe, especially Western ideas about Eastern Europe. I know you are as well. And um, the focus of my research initially was the 18th century. I'm a Dizwikimist by training. Um, 25 years ago, I wrote a book called Inventing Eastern Europe, which argued that the Western philosophers invented Eastern Europe, synthesized it conceptually in their um, writings about the region. And I have been long contemplating the possibility of bringing some of these ideas to bear on the 20th century, in part because I lived through the latter half of the 20th century and saw Eastern Europe you know, completely transformed, um, you know, during my my own academic lifetime, and I was interested in trying to write a little bit about um, what happened in the 20th century, and I guess with the passing of the 20th century and our entrance into the 21st century, I began to feel that it was no longer off limits to me as history territory, and I started to think about. Um, 20th century ideas about Eastern Europe and the role they played in its political transformations. And I came to Wilson in part because he's a, you know, a titanic figure when it comes to um, thinking about Eastern Europe, but also because we obviously we were moving through a whole series of centennials, beginning with the centennial of the outbreak of the First World War and perhaps culminating in the centennial last year, 2019, of the Treaty of Versailles. And that whole centennial way of thinking put me in mind of Wilson and the um, outsized role that he played. And um, that's what brought me to it. I would say it's a project that was initially meant to follow up on an article that was published in the Journal of Modern History that dealt with um, the ways in which Western writers wrote about Eastern Europe in 1911, 1912, 1913. I was then going to launch myself into the World War I period. And the Wilson Project just turned out to be so large that I felt that I needed to write a small book about it. Um, I might originally have imagined it as a chapter in a larger book about Eastern Europe, but it really took over my life for several years. Yeah. And I I think in looking at the structure of the book, because you've divided it into four chapters, that there there really is a changing understanding of Eastern Europe. You, You actually write toward the end of your introduction that 
the map of Eastern Europe today still reflects Wilson's problematic preoccupation with delineating an interlocking complex of national states. And its origins can be traced in the intellectual history of Wilson's writings and thoughts as they emerged from the cultural context of mental mapping during and after World War I. So here I have two questions. First, what do you mean by the intellectual history of Wilson's writings and thoughts? Who is your Woodrow Wilson? And then secondly, what is the cultural context of mental mapping from, say, 1914 to 1919? Um, so in terms of the... Um the, the an intellectual history of Wilson, I was really not trying to write a political history or a diplomatic history of Wilson, though um, that inevitably forms the backdrop of what I'm doing. I was interested in um, what was going on in his mind, what his thoughts were about Eastern Europe, how those thoughts got there, and how they produced a, you know, what, what, I would call a mental map for Wilson of a region that he never visited. And in a way it's in, and I experienced some of this with inventing Eastern Europe as well, writing about the 18th century. It's a very pure work of intellectual history since Wilson never sets foot in the region. His ideas about Eastern Europe are, you know, ideas in their purest form. Um, he, there's no empirical eyewitness experience of the uh, of the territories that he did so much to transform. So that, in some ways, seemed to me to make it a, a perfect intellectual history project. Um, and that's the kind of historian I am. I'm interested in writing about ideas, mentalities, and cultural contexts. Um, if we were thinking about the cultural context for um, Wilson, what it would mean to think of this as a cultural history. Um, it's on the one hand, um, I would say, a, um, a cultural history of a certain sort of American naivete with respect to Europe, in which World War I um, provides the kind of engagement that um, then demands um, instant experience, um, instant knowledge. Um, Wilson's a sort of model for thinking that way, because I would say that Wilson is someone who thought very, very little about Eastern Europe up until 1917, up until the moment that America entered World War I. And um, over the course of the next two years, um, gives himself a crash course in which he um, attempts to learn as much as he can uh, about the region. So in that sense, the cultural context is one of um, American naivete and American self-education, Wilson's self-education with respect to Eastern Europe. But of course, there's also a um, broader cultural context of American and um, European knowledge about the region. I've um, thought about this a little bit, the and especially in relation to academic knowledge. And um, your work has actually been really helpful to me in thinking about the academic foundations of cartography um, in the period. But um, if you look across Europe, um, in Germany, in Britain, in France, as well as in America, you can see the um, beginnings of an academic structuring of knowledge that focuses on Eastern Europe in the early 20th century. And one of the things that I think is super interesting about 
Wilson's self-education is that it both draws on those early academic foundations of East Europe, of the study of, of East, Eastern Europe, and then actually provides an enormous impetus to the further development of those uh, of the academic study of Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I, well, thank you. I think we do share this um, preoccupation with mental maps and, and mental mapping. I remember as a graduate student being inspired by inventing Eastern Europe and reading your book really thoroughly and, and thinking also when you we were just publishing Venice and the Slavs. So my next question has to do with where your story begins, maybe even where your opera begins. I know you're a great fan of opera. Um, the mental maps as you describe them are a lot about fantasy and a kind of cultural subconscious. You, you describe mental maps at one point as imagistic, impressionistic, idiosyncratic maps in the human mind. So where do you start the story of Wilson, let's say, in, in contrast to a lot of the political biographers in an, in an American vein? Um, so for me... There are a couple of points in Wilson's biography that are interesting to think about for as the prehistory that's really essential for understanding his encounter with the region during the war. Um, the first is one that I signal almost immediately in the book, and it's his engagement as a student with Gladstone. Uh, we know this about Wilson, that um, Gladstone is one of his political heroes. Um, this is the, the great British liberal leader. Um, but I think that, and, and, and it's, it's, an, it's an, a, a sense of filiation that makes sense. That is to say, Gladstone is a Christian liberal with a capital L. And that actually fits Wilson very nicely. Um, the righteousness of Gladstone, um, for better or for worse, also characterizes Wilson and his political style. But one of the things that I found, and it's something that there's not actually um, a lot of documentation of, but there's just enough documentation to make the case, is that Wilson, as a Princeton um, student in the 1870s, was um, following Gladstone closely, which means that he was following the Eastern crisis of the 1870s. And one of the things that you find um, if you begin to look at the Wilson papers is that his um, earliest, most, um, um, his earliest assumptions about Eastern Europe are based on a Turkophobia that's clearly inherited from the Eastern crisis of the 1870s and Gladstone's righteousness about the Ottoman Empire is expressed in the famous Bulgarian horrors pamphlet. So that was one piece of Wilson's early life that I wanted to try to bring to bear on his understanding of Eastern Europe during World War One, And I would say that the conventional literature on Wilson has been, and has been, to the extent that it's focused on the region, um, has been focused on um, Wilson and the Habsburg monarchy, and the Ottoman Empire is usually considered as a separate and um, secondary issue for Wilson. I thought that it was interesting. 
um, to think about this a little bit in reverse. That is to say that Wilson is someone who comes to the war with um, strong early preconceptions about the Ottoman Empire, and it's the development of those ideas that eventually begin to shape his perspective on the Habsburg monarchy. Um, I should say that when I say the conventional literature um, focuses on Wilson and the Habsburg monarchy, there's not actually a whole lot of conventional literature that does that. One of the things that surprised me considerably um, when I started to think about this is that Wilson who's the subject of an enormous literature and a lot of recent publications um, that focus on, say, um, Wilson and the wider world. Um, Manella's um, Wilsonian Moment is a brilliant book that um, does precisely that, that thinks about Wilson and the colonial world um, in Asia, in Africa. And I, I, I was a little surprised that um, Eastern Europe had received pretty little attention over the course of recent decades. And there hadn't been a major book focused on precisely that since Mamate's study from the 1950s. That is to say, it almost the, the discussion of this almost dates back to people who lived through the world of the Peace Conference. And um, it seemed to me that it was time to try to you know cast a fresh eye on Wilson in Eastern Europe. So the first piece of the Wilson biography that I wanted to try to bring to bear on this study was this early um, engagement with Gladstone and through Gladstone, the Eastern question. Um, the second piece, um, if I can continue for just, for just, for just a minute, sure, please. is Wilson's um, early childhood in Confederate Virginia and um, what it meant for Wilson to think about race, because race is a word that's used um, – pretty casually in Wilson's writings about Eastern Europe. He sees it as a region of multiple races. You and I know that the word race is used very casually and sometimes signifies race as we understand it, but sometimes signifies ethnicity and nationality as we would now understand it in the early in the early 20th century. Um, I'm a little interested in the way that those um, categories bleed into one another in Wilson's writing, and in particular, his preoccupation with the unmixing of races in Eastern Europe, that is to say, the sorting of nations into national states, seemed to me interesting in relation to his early Virginia Confederate childhood, and perhaps most of all, his rhetorical um, formulation of the war as a war of emancipation seemed to me interesting as a Lincoln-esque preoccupation. Um, one of the things that, um, again, I feel has you know barely been noted is that the Wilson presidency coincides precisely with the building of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. And I was interested in trying to think through Wilson's relationship to Lincoln when Wilson sees himself as a man who's waging a war of emancipation. Yeah, and you actually have a section which I think is absolutely fascinating um, called Like the Voice of Lincoln. Um, and, and I never would have thought of the way that you draw back into American history, especially the, the postbellum history, and then reflect to Voltaire. Um, it's not just about Gladstonian Turco Turcophobia or outrage from the 1870s, but 
I, I'm really interested in this longer trajectory that you draw with the project of enlightenment and, and with some of the major thinkers, both in the American and, and in the European context. What I want to ask about, to take it beyond Wilson, is who is, who is his supporting cast? Now, you, you mentioned quite, quite rightly that he has very little empirical experience. Um, he's zero. in fact zero. He's in fact never visited um, beyond London and Paris. He he purports to speak for peoples he probably has never encountered, except maybe on the campaign trail. So how how to re, how to resolve that? He he is actually becoming the spokesman like Voltaire and Rousseau and Lincoln too for millions of people. How how do you get at that? Um, so there are, um, I would say there are th- uh, uh, several different pieces here. <laughs> One which you've already alluded to on the campaign trail is Wilson's relationship to um, the East European immigrant communities in the United States. Um, he needs them, right? They're useful and important to him, and they therefore um, have the possibility of um, lobbying him a little bit over the course of the wartime years, and they do that. Um, Wilson, however, tends to regard um, these immigrant groups with some reserve, right? He knows that they are politically necessary to him, but um, his own patrician perspective on the immigrant communities is something that comes across, say, pretty clearly in his History of America, published in the early 20th century. Um, And it's not not a flattering perspective, but um, it's it's one open door um, in the White House for people who want to talk to him about Eastern Europe would be representatives of Im- of immigrant groups. Um, the second piece of this um, is connected to um, personal friendships that he strikes up with um, self-appointed East European political leaders who are present in America during the war. And he meets with both Masaryk and Paderewski, who are both really interesting to him and whom he feels he has a special friendship and relationship with and will continue to feel that for the rest of his life. He dies early in the 1920s, in the mid-20s, soon after leaving office, as you know. Um, but, um, there's a sentimental, um, piece to Wilson's viewing of Eastern Europe in which he views it through certain particular friendships, which become for him metonymies that, um, allow him to see himself as the friend to an entire nation. Um, it's something that you see a lot of in the Wilsonian um, discussion of the um, late war years and then the early peace years. Um, the idea of Wilson as the friend of the of the friend of Czechoslovakia, that I say his friendship for Mazur- for Masaryk makes him a friend to the entire country, and Wilson himself um, is very taken with this idea of his friendship for whole peoples, um, who in turn reciprocate that friendship and have um, in his at least in his imagination, but although not entirely in his imagination, and have reciprocal sentimental feelings for him. So that would be the second piece, Wilson's 
cultivation of the friendship for particular individuals from the region, and then his sense of having a friendship for whole communities, for whole nations from the region. And finally, the third piece, um, which again touches on your work, is the inquiry piece. Um, there is created for Wilson in 1917 by his close confidant and advisor, Colonel Edward House, a research group called The Inquiry, um, directed by Sidney Mezes, the president of City College in New York, um, including the um, young journalist um, Walter Lippmann, but also including um, both academics and and um, figures from the world of, of, of cartography, because Wilson is super interested in having the inquiry collect maps for him, um, that will educate the president about Eastern Europe, will prepare papers for him about different parts of the region, about the different peoples of the region. And there's actually a mobilization of academic knowledge for the briefing of the president in beginning in 1917 and moving right through the team that he, um, the, the, the very large team of advisors he takes with him to the peace conference, um, including Isaiah Bowman, who you write about in such an interesting way in your book, Math Men. Um, so the mobilization of academic knowledge is the third piece and one that's really interesting to me. Wilson is often faulted for wanting to be the star of the peace conference all by himself. That is to say, there are, are um, he, 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 the, the delegation that he names probably should have included um, other high level people who, um, especially from the Republican party, that is to say his chances of getting the treaty approved um, would have been much greater had he included someone like Senator Lodge, who ends up sinking the treaty in the Senate, had he included someone like um, um, former President Taft or even former President Theodore Roosevelt, um, you know, really large figures from American political life. He didn't want to take that chance. He didn't want to be upstaged in any way. He didn't want to have any um, rival figures of stature on the peace delegation. So in, in Paris, and he, um, avoids that, um, to his cost, ultimately, when it comes to trying to bring the treaty back home to the public and to the Senate. Um, but he does actually bring a boatload of advisors, including academics of, you know, considerable standing who are there precisely to provide him with information, um, about the regions that he himself um, has never seen and knows very little about and has never thought about before 1917. Yeah. And, and of course, Bowman and House are responsible for rounding up all of the maps. Bowman is the, the chief territorial specialist. So, you know, they're working at the headquarters of the American Geographical Society in 156th Street in New York. And they, they round up over a thousand maps. I think it's something like 1,200 maps to bring with them to Paris um, do you have a good, I really have to ask this, but do you have a good impression of which of these experts, advisors had the most influence? I, I've always been puzzled by this. You have such an interesting chapter com- with with Archibald Carol- Carey Coolidge, for instance, who you know, it is a very important figure. Coolidge has a team of American informants, including a lot of military officers and academics who wind up in Eastern Europe. So what, what is the filter upwards to Wilson? You, 
you know, you have a, you have a sense of it, but it's really hard to, to see who's sort of whispering in his ear. How do you get at that? So um, Coolidge is not actually whispering in his ear. <coughs> Coolidge is actually based in Vienna during the, um, um, the, you know, most of the period of the, the conference is taking place, although he comes to Paris later. Um, he's providing reports from the field that Wilson is really interested in reading and interested in understanding. I would say that Coolidge's team plays a considerable role. And when I, when, um, just to just say a word, Coolidge is the, um, the Harvard professor who is most interested in Eastern Europe. He's actually done the traveling that Wilson never did. He's been to Russia. He's been to the Ottoman Empire. He's had an audience with the Tsar. He's seen the Ottoman Sultan. Um, he knows German. Um, he's um, familiar with Central Europe. He's um, someone who has a lot of knowledge of the region, of academic knowledge. And he's someone who actually introduces um, Slavic history at Harvard in the early 20th century, teaches a course on the history of Northern and Eastern Europe that, you know, begins the academic study of that area at Harvard and who then um, brings his graduate students in on the Wilsonian project as well. They're his assistants as part in, in the inquiry, and they're also present in Europe during the peace conference. These would be Robert Kerner and Robert Howard Lord. Um, Kerner, specialist on um, Czech stuff and South Slavic stuff. Lord, a Polonist who's you know very interested in um, Polish issues. I would say that in terms of having Wilson's ear. Um, what the history experts are able to provide are um, cautions to Wilson. Um, Wilson, you know, comes to Europe with a set of principles um, and um, a set of um, war aims that he believes are um, relatively straightforward. And the um, historians who fan out across the across the region and send reports to him are the ones who are cautioning him that it's not as um, as straightforward as he thinks it is that um, populations are mixed in a way that will make um, national self determination pretty complicated on the ground and um, Wilson listens to their um, their cautions. He doesn't always take them into account. He doesn't always feel that he can take them into account. But you can see Wilson gradually appreciating as the conference, um, you know, proceeds during those first six months of 2019 that um, all of these questions are more complicated than he thought there that the, he thought they would be. Um, I mean, say famously the thirteenth point on the creation of an independent Poland um, on lands with indisputably Polish populations. Right, the question of what those lands with indisputably Polish populations actually are is something that Wilson only comes to understand in its full complexity over the course of the peace conference itself. And it's someone like Lord who's trying to um, 
keep him informed of what that might actually mean on the ground in different parts of the regions that are claimed by the new Polish state. Um, you'd probably have a better eye idea than I do of to what extent Bowman had Wilson's ear. I think that Bowman was always able to put a map in Wilson's hand. And one of the things that I you know, thought about often I mean, when I thought about you while I was working on this book was, you know, we, we frequently see in the notes of the peace conference, Wilson with a map in his hand, right, um, addressing the big three or the council of four um, and pointing at the map, which presumably Bowman put there right in his hand. But um, whether Bowman is actually shaping the way that he uses the map and the way that he reflects on the map is harder for me to say. I don't know what your impression is. My sense is that a lot of the advisors, um, you know, did their best here, but found it a little frustrating um, to bring to bear their addition on Wilson's um, actual negotiation at the peace conference. And I think Wilson himself found it a little frustrating at the peace conference to not be able to um, um, deal with these issues um, in their full complexity, but to feel that there was political and diplomatic pressure upon him all the time in order to, you know, think politically about these issues rather than academically. Yeah, I, I actually, I really do agree with you in the in the Wilsonian friendship chapter about Wilson, because it, it seemed to me that he was so confident in his own rectitude, almost to the point of cocksureness you know you have this this part where you you talk about his exchanges with Clemenceau and Lloyd George and Orlando I, I didn't study the the Italian aspect very well um, but you know I mean we're the point where he's insisting to Orlando that plebiscite is the answer and and of course this doesn't work really well once you get onto the ground and start applying these a priori concepts Um and so, you know, I, I think you've captured these exchanges very well with the great men of the Paris Peace Conference. They're very prickly exchanges with Clemenceau and, and I think equally with Lloyd George. Or maybe even more so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, and so Wilson is trying to trying to apply these dynamics of friendship, but it becomes something like a like a cover up. It's a more it's a. It's moral rhetoric, but maybe correct me if I'm wrong. It becomes a vocabulary of, of, of trying to make things happen when they actually when they actually can't. Um, you know, um, Jesse Labo in her book on transatlantic Central Europe has, has a wonderful idea of the workaround. Like if, if you can't solve a problem, you work around it, and then you hope to come back to it later. But of course, the conference is over <laughs> after May, and and so you know then they have done they have done their best, which may not be may not be good at all. So I agree with you that the question of you know trying to um, on the one hand um, presents a sense of himself as the missionary savior of the region, and there's no doubt that Wilson has a messianic sense of what his role is at the Paris Peace Conference, and there are plenty of other people to um, confirm him in that sense of himself during the Peace Conference, and at the same time to create a settlement that works on the ground. And to do him justice, 
he does engage with the details of what it means to create a settlement, a, a settlement that would work on the ground. But it's very hard to square that circle. That is to say, on the one hand, to be a messiah, and on the other hand, to um, work with the dirty details of the settlement. And Wilson is constantly moving between those two registers. And I feel it's a little bit, I mean, you can feel the awkwardness and incongruousness of it for him when you read the transcripts of the peace conference discussions. Um, the plebiscites, I, I thought, were, were totally fascinating, and Wilson's ideas about them are changing and evolving. And again, this is with response to what his team in the field is telling him, right, his experts. He's listening to them. He, I mean, he loves the idea of plebiscites, and one of the things that interested me was um, Wilson coming out of the progressive movement in the United States comes from a political movement that's really interested in the power of the referendum. And Wilson is therefore um, deeply interested in whether that can be applied to um, national self-determination um, in Europe, the referendum. But he be, he's made aware of how complicated it is to make referendums meaningful on the ground. And I actually enjoyed writing about this at a moment when um, referendums were such touchy issues in our own life, uh, in our own lives and times. That I say I was writing about this through the moment of the Brexit referendum and at a moment when we were, you know, all very, very aware of how touchy, difficult, volatile, uh, and volatile um, referendums could be, um, this supremely democratic form, which at the same time gives all kinds of encouragement to undemocratic forces in politics. So that was very much on my mind as I was writing. Um, Wilson attempting to think through the usefulness of referenda for um, producing fair settlements. The other thing that really interested me, and I, you know, ended up writing a whole chapter about it. And I'm again, I'm a little surprised that there hasn't been more attention to this in the Wilson literature. Is what I would call the invention of minority rights at the, at the conference. Right. At, at the I think you're right about that. Yeah. And Wilson's gradual realization that it is the flip side of national self-determination. And that now if, if national self-determination is implicitly, implicitly about national majorities, then it must also incorporate some dimension of minority rights. And I see that as one of the, you know, brilliantly innovative Wilsonian um, conceptions at the peace conference, but at the same time, one that's, you know, far more prickly than he himself appreciates when he attempts to um, bring it to bear on the settlement. Well, that's saying, a, sorry, I that, interrupted you. Yeah, no, that's a perfect segue into the Polish question. Um, could you share your story and, and thoughts about minority rights Um in, in the context of, of the chapter where you're writing about Paderewski's pomposity and staginess, and you have a wonderful story of a goat herd, um, I, I, think, I think our listeners would, would be interested in this. I mean, how, how do you get at the Polish question, let's say, um, we've got, you know, the, the federalism of Piłsudski, we've got the anti-Semitism of Dmowski, we have the changing Wilsonian attitude. He becomes very, very frustrated, as many do with the Poles. And then, of course, the Polish-Ukrainian war breaks out after the conference. 
um, there's a goat herd in your story, and it's also very operatic. So th- this is all a big question about the elephant known as the, as the Polish question. Okay. So um, the, 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 the Tatra mountain goat herds, um, I was really interested to find them in the Wilson papers. Again, they felt like a little bit of a discovery. Um, they, there's, there's, there's been a tiny little bit of Polish writing about them. Um, there's um, a pair of goat herds and, and a priest who make their way to Paris from the Tatra Mountains, from the um, region that's disputed between Poland and Czechoslovakia at the peace conference. It's, I mean, we know um, Teshin Silesia is one of the disputed regions, and along with it, there are these small communities called Orava and Spish that are disputed in the Tatra Mountains. And the goat herds make their way all the way to Paris to meet with Wilson to, um, you know, to tell him that they want to live in Poland and not in Czechoslovakia. And um, obviously it's partly staged. There are, you know, higher forces in play who are encouraging them to come to Paris to um, make this case to the president. Um, But it's um, from their point of view, um, from the Polish point of view, you know, a great success. The goat herds succeed in meeting with Wilson at the Hotel Creon. Um, the Hotel Creon probably never saw anything like it. Um, <laughs> the Wilsonian no. staff who um, who write about, who, who record this um, in their papers are all very struck by it. Um, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of sort of discussion about, um, you know, what they smell like these goat herds. And it was fascinating to me because um, everyone was obviously very, very ready to let these goat herds stand in for Eastern Europe and represent Eastern Europe to Paris. And the fact that they were um, poor, uneducated um, goat herds made them the perfect emblems of Eastern Europe for the um, peacemakers in Paris and for Wilson especially. And while Wilson enjoyed having um, a sense of personal friendship with another professor like himself, I'm thinking of Masaryk, or with a great artist like Paderewski, um, this made you know concrete or rather made flesh him what it meant to imagine himself as a friend to the people of Eastern Europe, the implicitly backward and primitive people of Eastern Europe. These are figures who, for me, could have come out of the pages of inventing Eastern Europe in the 18th century and were self-consciously staged to have make that impression on Wilson. And um, he was deeply moved by um, his um, meeting with them. And one of the things that I thought was simply amazing was on the day of the signing of the treaty, June 28, 1919, um, when Wilson um, should have been having all kinds of anxieties and doubts about what he'd accomplished, whether this settlement was one that um, could last, whether um, the humiliation of the Germans was going to have, um, you know, disastrous long-term consequences, let's say in a, in a Keynesian fashion, um, whether he would ever be able to make this um, politically viable 
in the United States, the one thing that's on his mind after the treaty is signed is the goat herds. And he writes to Lansing and he says, I can't believe we forgot this. Did we give them what they wanted? Are, are Spish and Orava going to end up on the Polish side rather than on the Czech side? Could you look into it? And um, it, would it even be possible to fix it? At this at this point at, at 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 this point, so that seemed to me astonishing. The that would be the one anxiety on Wilson's mind in the evening of you know the twenty eighth of June nineteen nineteen, and it gives you a sense um, of what you just of what you just said. I think very rightly of Wilson's um, massive self confidence in what he was doing, right? I mean, over, over waning, overweening egotism, right? To believe that he could actually produce a settlement that would, you know, solve the problems of nationality in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but I'm betrayed by just this one anxiety, which we could see again as a metonymy for a much larger set of anxieties that he might have been entertaining <laughs> about the justice and workability of the settlement in terms of nationality. Yeah. And you mentioned that there has been some psychobiographical work or psychobiographical approaches um, to Wilson. Do you, do you share in this psychogeographical or psychobiographical, um, let's say, strategy of interpretation? You mentioned sentimental metonymy. And it seems to me much more than a lot of the biographers, you know, Arthur Link, for example, that, that Wilson is an extraordinarily emotional person. So, it, it, is this is this psycho psycho history, Larry, or, or how would you describe it? Um, I'm not totally comfortable with thinking about it as psycho history. I'm interested in you know problematizing what it would mean to call it psycho history. I am interested in um, Wilson's um, sense of self. I'm interested in how he saw his role and how he saw his mission, and that. That would be, um, you know, obviously would have psychological underpinnings, but I would, uh, you know, probably want to insist on seeing it as um, an intellectual history and a cultural history. I mean, the definition of mental mapping that, um, you know, we've all been negotiating over, trying to understand, um, suggests that it would necessarily have certain psychological dimensions. That is to say, if mental maps are present in the mind, then they would have to have a certain psychological structuring. But I um, would be reluctant to feel that psychology is what drives the whole project. Yeah. It, is there is there a way that you were able to figure out Wilson's pet nations? You actually used this phrase at one point. So does it accord with Czechoslovakia, Poland, Yugoslavia? Are there exceptions? How? I mean, he is a kind of Rousseauian figure, idealizing the sort of noble savage. Would you would you agree with that? Um, he's capable of idealizing noble savages, Wilson. But I would say on the whole that um, his relationship to, say, Masaryk and the Czechs is not one which is about Czech savagery. Um, 
he is, you know, reasonably well persuaded of um, that, you know, the peoples of Eastern Europe are peoples who are, um, you know, should have states of their own in which they are national citizens. I don't see the 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 Wilson papers as being marked by a sense of savagery, though obviously his engagement with the goat herds um, places the whole thing in civil in civilizational terms that are pretty interesting. Um, he does he is interested in the idea of small nations. He's interested in the idea of new nations that require tutelage. Um, he's interested in. Um, the ways in which um, Slavic peoples are connected to one another, and this comes up a couple of times in the in the conference discussions, in which he worries about their susceptibility to Bolshevism. That is to say, he's aware of the ethnographic and linguistic relation to the Slavic Russians, um, but. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to see it as a relation to the east to Eastern Europe as a realm of savages. I would say more of um, new nations and small nations who require a certain kind of tutelage from the um, great powers and older nations of the West. Yeah, and do you think that? this Masaryk conception of small nations applies to Southeastern Europe. You have a juxtaposition with Montenegro, for example. So if we go from East Central Europe to Southeastern Europe and and at the intersection of the Habsburg and Ottoman defunct empires, is there, where does Wilson's sympathy, let's say, not extend? It doesn't seem to extend to Hungary, for example, right? so, so let, let me answer the first part first. Um, I came into this expecting Wilson to be um, the worst kind of Balkanist in the ways that, say, you know, Maria Todorova has described in her book on imagining the Balkans, and to be full of um, condescending perspectives on Balkan savages that come out of the world of the Balkan, the, the experience of the Balkan Wars. Actually, um, it's just not there. In the in the in the record, um, and I wonder if it's just because Wilson somehow missed the Balkan Wars, wasn't paying attention <laughs> to them. Right? They um, take right. place during the first years of his presidency, but I wonder if his his attention is just focused elsewhere because we don't actually see that marking um, the Wilson papers in the way that we might expect. Um, If his condescension was going to come out anywhere, we might have expected it to come out there. So his antipathies are also very present um, in the, in the papers, however, and they're, they're, they're not strictly a question of, you know, the, what we would think of as classic Western condescension towards um, Easterners of the kind that I write about in Inventing Eastern Europe. So no great sympathy for the Hungarians, but um, 
And the Hungarians are, of course, the big losers in, at the peace conference, right? They lose, uh, you know, more than half of the territory and population of Habsburg Hungary, which is assigned to new states of Romania, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia. And the Hungarians have not forgotten that to this day. And this year is going to be the centennial of the Treaty of Trianon. And the, the Hungarians are still revisionists up to the present moment. Um, however, um, if you look closely at the Wilson papers, there's no great animosity towards the Hungarians in um, in the Wilson papers. Um, he's um, even opening to listen to something about what his advisors are telling him about um, Hungarian sensitivity, Hungarian needs, what Hungarians want from him. There's a brief moment during the Karoli government following the armistice when the Hungarians actually have high hopes of Wilson and when it's possible to imagine Imagine a kind of Hungarian Wilsonianism, um, but the basically the Belakun experience um, r- makes that impossible. Um, although even before um, the Belakun moment, um, we can see you know pretty clearly that Hungary's post-war neighbors um, are um, seizing upon Hungarian territories. Wilson doesn't like it. Um, Wilson at the peace conference is um, angry, especially about the Romanians taking the um, settlement into their own hands in occupying territories of Habsburg Hungary in Transylvania. And I would say that if you looked at the Wilson papers, unexpectedly, he's more hostile to the Romanians than he is to the Hungarians, even though the Romanians are the ones who emerge as the huge beneficiaries from the peace conference and the Hungarians emerge as, you know, major losers in terms of territory and population. And what Wilson doesn't like about the Romanians is precisely that he sees them as grabbers. Grabber is the worst thing you can be in the Wilsonian lexicon, right? Because he's trying to, um, on the one hand, imagine a new diplomacy, which is not about grabbing territory. And on the, I mean, that's the, the noblest way of envisioning But in a more um, political way of envisioning it, he believes that Paris ought to control the power and that um, the peace conference itself ought to be making the crucial decisions about um, who um, gets which territories. And nations who take that into their own hands are nations that he um, ends up developing considerable animosity for. pretty hostile to becomes pretty hostile to the Italians over the course of the peace conference believes that they are not serious about negotiating a uh, a fair national settlement with Yugoslavia in the disputed territories um, becomes pretty hostile to Bulgaria over the course of the negotiations and his very fond feelings for Poland become pretty complicated and attenuated over the course of the peace conference, right? He ultimately clings to the idea of himself as a friend of Poland um, but it becomes increasingly difficult for him to do it over the peace conference. He sees 
um, say, Pilsudski. Um, he doesn't really understand Pilsudski's federalism. You referenced this earlier. He sees, sees Pilsudski as a military man who's out to conquer territory um, without regard to the adjudication of the peace conference. And that always rubs Wilson the wrong way. Um, he, By the time he comes to the, the very late period after he's left Paris, there's one moment in the papers in, in, the, in which he actually reflects on um, who are his least favorite nations in, <laughs> in Eastern Europe. And yeah. I, I can't remember how he ranks them, but um, his hostility to the Romanians remains pretty high throughout the, throughout the um, conference and post-conference period. Um, and it's precisely because they're the ones who end up triumphantly in control of all the territories that they want, including vast minority populations whose rights Wilson rightly suspects the Romanians are not going to be interested in protecting or guaranteeing. Yeah, that's interesting. And and then, you know, you see from the beginning of your book, this parallel um imperial understanding, the hostility toward Constantinople and Vienna, now toward the end of the Paris Peace Conference, there, there's almost a new racial and ethnic hierarchy of, of, of antipathy, which leaves us with the, you know, the train station in Prague, where, <laughs> where, where the statue of, of Wilson has, has such a fascinating history. Um, it, it seems like the veneration is strongest among among the Czechs or Czechs and Slovaks to, toward Wilson. Um, I want to ask, since we're winding down, Larry, if you might uh, take a minute or two and, and talk a little bit about your current research and, and interests, um, or if you'd like about the impact of this book and what you would what you would like to see going forward. Um. I'm right now have been writing, as you mentioned before, I've been writing a lot about opera over the course of the last several years, have been doing a, um, a lot of essays about opera and a, and a fair amount of opera criticism, wrote a whole book about opera in cultural and intellectual history, The Singing Turk. Um, I have in mind a project about opera in the Habsburgs that would think about opera ideologically and politically in its relation to um, um, the Habsburg um, state and the Habsburg dynasty. I wrote a little bit about this um, actually in the New York Times um, last year in connection to the centennial production in Vienna of Richard Strauss's opera Die Frau und Schatten, um, which was about, a, which is about an empress in search of a shadow. Um, it means the woman without a shadow. And I wrote about it in relation to the actual Habsburg empresses of the um, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, Sisi, of course, the wife of Franz Josef, and um, um, perhaps most interestingly, Sita, the last um, Habsburg Empress, whom uh, um, who actually lived until 1989, and um, was is was is a figure of interest to me because I um, participated in a small way in the um, Vatican consideration of her possible beatification over the course of the last decade, um, but. Um, thinking about opera in relation to politics and ideology is something that I would, you know, like to go on doing over the course of the coming years. And because part of my work is based in Italy right now at NYU Florence, I'm, I'd also be interested in doing more research on, um, the Habsburgs and, 
and Italy over the course of the centuries and how we should understand um, Italian culture in relation to Habsburg politics and ideology. So those are both things that are on my mind as ongoing um, future research projects. Well, that's, that sounds fascinating, and and I I know our listeners will will want to read this. I well, I know I do. Um, so I, I want to thank you, Larry, for joining me. This is Stephen Siegel, your host at the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Larry Wolf. Larry's new book is Woodrow Wilson and the Reimagining of Eastern Europe, just out in 2020 with Stanford University Press. Thanks, Larry, for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs>